This week on Myths and Legends, it's the second half of our story about the Holy Grail. You'll see how Dad's underwear can save your life, and why the perfect getaway car might just be a cloud. The creature this time is just a friendly little seahorse, who might just unite all the other fish under the king of the fish to make war on the surface world. This is Myths and Legends, episode 120B, Beyond the Sea. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Last week, we met several characters. Joseph of Arimathea, his son Josephus, King Mordrain, Nassian, and others will pick up their story today as they continue their journey to an island on the edge of the world, Britain. Your entire world changes in a day. You realize you're part of something bigger than yourself, a story that will live on long after your death. You have a mission, a purpose, and so you have to go home. King Mordrain had heard of this island on the edge of the world, the place he would live, defending the most holy of objects. It was also the place he would die. A storm gathered overhead. The angel had told them of the Grail quest, how Mordrain and Nassian's descendants would defend the Grail, and when it went missing, and threw the land into chaos, how one person far, far down the line would seek it and find it. The only thing the angel didn't mention? When their roles would start. Joseph of Arimathea, his wife, and Josephus seemed content to wait and hear from God, but Mordrain couldn't help asking how he would know when to go. Joseph explained that he was asking the wrong question and simply left it at that. And so the trio headed east, while Mordrain and his brother-in-law, Nassian, turned west, back home. Now, nearly a year later, mental images of the cave were beginning to fade. Mordrain looked out on the darkening horizon, toward the torrent of rain that would hit the castle, and he begged God for a sign. He pleaded to know what God wanted him to do. After nearly a year, God answered. At that moment, lightning struck. Mordrain's journey had begun. Below, Nassim was on his way to visit King Mordrain when he felt it, the ground starting to tremble beneath his feet. That was when he saw the lightning strike. On the tallest tower, King Mordrain had stood looking out on the storm. Nassim had a gut feeling and lifted his eyes toward his brother and his king. It happened in slow motion. The bolt snaked down from the sky, and it hit Mordrain. Nassian shirked away from the accompanying flash and boom, but looked back in time to see the stone still smoking. Immediately, he took off toward his brother as fast as he could. He pushed open the door to the king's room, but saw nothing. Mordrain was gone. He rushed past the smoking stones to the railing and looked all around. Mordrain hadn't fallen, his smoking remains weren't anywhere in the room. Where had he gone? A nobleman stormed into the room. A man by the name of Gallifrey, with a royal guard in tow. He demanded to know where his king was. Nassian, too, demanded to know. The king had been struck by lightning in the storm. He had disappeared. The guard members looked at one another. 
What was Nasian talking about? What storm? Nasian turned to the smoking balcony, but the doors weren't open anymore. And when he opened them, the sky was blue, and the streets were dry. The stones weren't smoking either. Gallifrey cleared his throat and asked again, Where was the king? Nasian looked confused. He, he didn't know. He could have sworn, but the clouds. Gallifrey shook his head, the guard members spreading out around the room in a circle. Nasian and his sister had converted the king to some foreign religion, demanding that the city be baptized, or else. And now, the coup was complete. Mordrain didn't have children yet, so he was the last of his line. His sister was there, her noble-born brother by her side. Gallifrey saw exactly what was going on. He motioned to the royal guard, who swooped in and put Nasian in irons for the disappearance of the king. Soldiers gave him a room with a view. From this location, Nasian should be able to watch his son die. Both of them had been taken to the dungeon. Nasian didn't have any lands of his own. His wife was gone, and his father had squandered their name, the remains of which were the only thing Nasian still had. But he had given that up when he was baptized. Now, the only thing left in the world he truly cherished was his son, a seven-year-old and they were dragging the young man up the stairs to throw him off the walls as punishment for his part in his father's treason. Nasim himself was forced up to the bars, a spear at his back. His son would land right in front of him, and if there was any life left in him, Nasim would be forced to watch it slowly and painfully leave him. Even though his newfound faith had brought him here, Nasim still said a small prayer for the life of his son. As he spoke, he felt a hand on his shoulder, and the chains dropped from his hands and feet. The spear pointed at his back disappeared, and Nassim felt the same hand grip his arm and turn him around. Chains piled at his feet, and the hall was empty. Up ahead, at the mouth of the dungeons, a faint light glowed. Nassim looked back to the ground beneath the bars and ran for the dungeon opening. When he reached the opening, he found that it was foggy. He took a few steps beyond the dungeon, but only saw fog. He quickly turned back to the prison, but it was gone, hidden also in a blanket of white. That's when Nasian felt it. His body became lighter and lighter, and soon he left the ground altogether, his shoes just barely scraping it as he tried to bring himself back down to earth. He was floating. He found himself hovering above the cloud, looking on the wall below, just in time for the guards to push his son. Nasian screamed out, and Gallifrey turned to the sky. His eyes bulged as he looked again. It was Nasian riding a cloud. He called out to archers, but their attention was consumed by the pillar of fire coming from the heavens. When they realized said pillar was coming to consume them, they ran, and they failed. Gallifrey and everyone who stood atop the tower were instantly consumed by fire from heaven. The blaze lit up the night, and it revealed something else. There, Gripped by nine hands floating in the sky was Nasian's son. He was alive, and he was going somewhere else. Nasian realized his cloud and his son's hands were moving in different directions. Wherever they were going, they weren't going to the same place. Still, it was better than being trapped in a dungeon or watching your own son being thrown from high walls. Wherever he ended up, Nasian knew he just had to have faith. 
sometime later, Nassian blinked awake. He was no longer on a cloud. He was lying on rocks, on an island, staring at a docked ship. He had been flying for days, and his skin was now burned, and his lips chapped. He rose to his hands and knees and read something. There, engraved in gold letters at the center of the ship, just above the doorway, was a message. I'm just going to go ahead and read this verbatim. Take note, you who wish to enter me, whoever you may be. Take care that you're full of faith, for my nature is such that there is nothing but faith in me. Therefore, take care before you enter that you are not sullied, for faith is belief. As soon as you turn away from your belief in any way, I will turn away from you in such a way that you will have no help from me. I will fail you in all things, wherever you may be guilty of disbelief, and to whatever extent. Not only could the ship have really used an editor when communicating that it was ready and willing to fail its riders whenever they wavered in their ill-defined belief in any way, but it was also terrifying. It's like a car that warns you that if you think the wrong thing, it'll throw you out of it, going 80 miles per hour on the highway. Don't take that bet. Nassian took that bet. He stood and boarded the ship. As he explored, he noticed two things. One, the vessel was apparently abandoned. And two, there were a lot of these exposition-heavy, first-century post-it notes all around the ship, in the form of gold-embossed carved wood. Nassian also found a sword on the ship, with the inscriptions that read, alternatively, he who would bear the sword would be more valiant, brave, and confident than any other, which seems like pretty standard magical sword stuff, but it also said that anyone who prized the sword greatly would find it the most to blame in his moment of need, and that the sword would be most cruel to the one to whom it was most gracious. Nassian was smart enough to figure he was pressing his luck by being on the ship in the first place, and so he didn't draw the sword. Instead, he kept exploring until he found a bed, a crown, and so much writing that even the angels couldn't have carved it into the side of the ship, which is saying something given the previous warnings. It was a small chest, with a stack of papers explaining the ship, the bed, the sword, and three different colored spindles sitting before Nassian. The long message had been written by the man who constructed the ship, King Solomon. Apparently, Nassian also understood Hebrew from the 10th century BC. The contents of the chest explained how when Eve took a bite of that fateful apple, she kept a twig in her hand as she was being expelled from the Garden of Eden. She planted it, and it became a tree of its own. It was white, red, and green, in accordance with the different biblical events until Solomon cut it down so he could use it for a ship. Angels came to him one night and told him that, a long time from then, the last member of his line a knight who would quest in the land beyond from a kingdom called Camelot would bring an end to the quest for the Holy Grail. The ship would find him in his time of need, and the sword he found earlier, with the contradictory inscriptions, belonged to Solomon's father, King David, and it would break if anyone but the fated knight tried to draw it. Solomon was honored to be writing to that knight, and he wanted to communicate two powerful things on the day he found the ship. One, the spindles are totally real, and have never been painted. And two, women will lie to you, and if you don't believe me, nothing will keep you from being dishonored in the end. Nassian looked up. Huh. For a legendarily wise king, neither of those seemed particularly relevant. In fact, the second one was just bald-faced misogyny. He put his hands on his hips. Okay, yeah, he had been rescued from prison by a cloud, and watched his enemy be consumed by a literal pillar of fire from heaven. But three different colored spindles coming from the same tree, he doubted, <gasps> wait. As soon as he thought the word doubted, the ship opened up beneath him and dropped him fully clothed into the sea. Surprised and waiting to shore, 
Nassim was fairly certain he was not the legendary knight that would save them all. Next, Nassim walked around the island, trying to make sense of his new surroundings. The island appeared completely abandoned, and so he settled in again on the shore. He prayed, asking God to forgive his lack of faith in multicolored wood. If he ever made it off this island, he would... Wait, wow. Okay, that was easy. The ship was coming back. Wait, sun? On top of the ship, Nassim's son waved, saying how awesome was this ship. Cool sword, nice bed. He actually, at seven years old, understood dozens of languages, which maybe with the right kid I can buy that, but ancient Hebrew seems like a bit of a stretch. Regardless, he pulled the ship up to dad, asked why Nassim was so wet, and lowered a rope ladder. Nassim really tried to convince himself that he believed the spindles were really cool and real, wincing as he took that first step, and he exhaled. Okay, he was allowed on board. Nassim's son had been dropped off on an island as well, where he was picked up by a king. The good news? The king was super nice and receptive to converting to Christianity. The bad news? The king died in his room, and Nassim's son was the only witness. Naturally, everyone accused the boy of doing away with the king, but as no one really wanted to put a seven-year-old to the sword, they mercifully set him adrift on a boat with no rudder, and also a live, fully-grown lion. Determined to touch on all the biblical greatest hits, the story says that Nassian's son survived a night in the boat with the lion before bumping into this very ship, which took him straight to dad. So when Nassian boarded, the ship began to move, and the father-son duo found themselves excited about sailing off together toward whatever destiny God had in store for them. Hey, 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 you can't park there, a voice called from the stronghold. The ground shook, and Nassian and his son found a giant bounding toward them, telling them that they weren't allowed on his island without his leave. Nassian had been in prison when he was taken, so he didn't have any sword or armor. He did know of one sword, though. He clenched his jaw and narrowed his eyes. It was time for a hero to rise. He bounded down the stairs toward the bed, sword, and spindles, which he definitely believed were real. He grabbed the sword and brought it above deck. Nassian stood by his son and drew the sword. Today was the day that would go down in legend as the moment the grail hero arrived, and, oh, oh, okay, it broke. The sword immediately shattered because, once again, Nassian was not the grail hero. The giant was undeterred and continued bounding toward them, waving them off his proverbial lawn. Panicked, Nassian knelt down beside the shards of the sword and prayed to God for help killing this guy at the last moment and landed right next to a sword sticking out of the sand, having been left there by some soldiers, despite swords being super expensive in those times. The giant, who was more Game of Thrones giant size and, and less fee-fi-fo-fum beanstalk size, was nearly at the scene when Nassian bravely pointed the sword in front of him and closed his eyes, wincing. At last... He opened his eyes to find the giant skewered on the sword, club frozen above his own head. He was dead. Now, now, seeing as they had declined to simply raise the sails and leave, but instead killed the giant who wanted nothing more than to defend his homeland from invaders, the father and son just up and left, getting back aboard the ship, spreading the sails, 
and leaving the inhabitants of the island to pick up the pieces. They sailed on until one afternoon, Nassian saw a passing ship. He called to his son. He, he should come here right now. On the ship, sitting cross-legged on deck, was King Mordrain, the guy who was taken in the lightning storm at the top of the show. He grinned. Oh, hey guys, what's up? Wait, what are you guys doing here? They had a lot of catching up to do, Mordrain beamed. Apparently, Mordrain had also found himself left on an island. After a couple of weeks of crashing in an old pirate mansion and watching ships pass by, the king finally left on a ship of his own. You know, a lot of this stuff just seems really confusing. Like, there's no internal consistency to this at all. This stuff is just happening to happen, Mordrain said, trailing off. Christians, leave the ship, the trio heard from above. You are falling into sin. Alarmed, Nassian and his son took one look at each other and started booking it across deck to a long jump onto King Mordrain's vessel. Except, Nassian stopped midway, a confused look on his face. Wait, didn't God want them to ride this ship? And why were they falling into sin by riding a ship? Whatever, you need to get his stuff and... Oh, oh, this did not look good. Apparently, Nassian wasn't moving fast enough. And so, of course, an angel stabbed him in the thigh with a flaming sword. Far be it from me to instruct angels, but it seems counterproductive to stab someone in the leg if they aren't getting somewhere fast enough. Also, this ship has a built-in evacuation seat. It splits in half and drops any people with even slightly less than perfect faith into the sea. Luckily, Mordrain and Nassian's son were able to drag him from the ship and stomp out the fire on his clothes, which nothing really feels as good on a freshly stabbed leg as some vigorous stomping. Nassian passed out from pain and terror, but Mordrain and Nassian's son watched from the deck of their rescue ship as Solomon's ship sailed off into the sunset, only to return when the true Grail hero was born. High Master, at whose order you left your country, makes this command. Tonight, you are to know your wife carnally. May such seed issue that will keep and maintain the land that is promised to you. When this child, who will be male, is born, he shall be called Galahad, but not that Galahad. Thus, the arbiter of all things commands. That's a nearly direct quote, by the way. Joseph of Arimathea and his 60-plus-year-old wife lay in bed. Awake. Welp. Nothing like a strongly worded command from God himself to really get you going. All right, let's do this. And thus Galahad I, not the Galahad of the Grail Quest, was conceived. By now, Joseph and his people had been traveling around for quite a while. Actually, wandering was more like it, because they had just been told they were going to cross the Western Sea. So they walked all the way from the Middle East to the English Channel, each day praying before the Grail that God would lead them and every day God kind of answering that prayer by getting them a little closer to it. Eventually, months and months later, they stood by the churning channel, looking out on the sea beyond. It was night, and the group, numbering nearly 600, stood by the shore without ships or vessels or any way to cross the water. That's when Josephus spoke up. They had a journey to make, and it would apparently be without ships. Instead, it was going to be on Dad's underwear. More specifically, 
it was going to be on Joseph of Arimathea's undertunic, which was a tunic. He wore under his tunic, in the event that the vagaries of middle-aged clothing are too confusing. Josephus spread dad's clothes out on the water and announced to the group that only the most holy of them would be allowed to cross the channel in this way. Ships would swing by later to pick everyone else up. So yeah, if anyone wants to roll the dice with stepping on Joseph's clothes, they're welcome to. Just probably don't roll any actual dice because that's gambling and you'll instantly be disqualified. Any takers? For the 418 that opted out, at least you had to appreciate their insight. They sat wailing on the beach and vowing to be better. In addition to Joseph and his family, 122 people stepped on dad's miraculously expanding underwear. Of those, only two sank like a stone because, to quote an extremely appropriate source, they chose poorly. The grail out in front, the magic tunic ride zipped across the channel to a bright new home and destiny. On the beach, the remaining 418 sat in the dark, watching a bright future fade away, left with nothing but their lamentations and the sounds of waves crashing against the rocks to keep them company. It was first light when the crowd heard oars in the water and the sound of a man limping across wood. Nassian's face appeared at the bow of a large ship, several others close behind. It turned out that literally Mordrain's entire kingdom was out searching for him, thus providing all of the ships to ferry the group across the channel. The search party actually found him mere days after Nassian's flaming sword leg injury, and now he stood at the front of the ship, waving enthusiastically. Hey, you guys need a ride? Nassian, Joseph, Mordrain, Josephus, and all the others greeted each other and embraced. After a long journey from the Middle East, made all the longer by confusing ships, pirates, and giants, they had finally made it. They were in Britain. Now what? Well, first was another throwback to the Bible. The group journeyed inland until they were about a half day's walk from Oxford. It was then that the people started bickering, and it was revealed that for the hundreds of people Nassian and the others had rescued, only 12 loaves of bread remained. Chaos broke out, and some passengers were even about to kill each other for their rations. Quickly, Josephus ran, took out the grail, and shouted above the noise. The crowd began passing the loaves around, and when it was all said and done, nearly 600 people had eaten from just those 12 loaves. Sometime later, Joseph's people established a town called Galifort in honor of Joseph's soon-to-be-born child, and they started branching out in all directions. Joseph and his son began preaching to the surrounding people and eventually made it as far as a town called Camelot. There, a king called, no joke, King Crudel, saw them walking with the grail in front of them and laughed. Walking around barefoot with no armor? It was almost like they weren't even trying to fight. And of course, they really weren't. And Joseph and Josephus were quickly captured. Crudel thought the idea of the grail was so funny that he tossed it into the cell with his new prisoners, joking that they should try to live off of it if it was so great, not knowing that Joseph had done exactly that for 43 years. Well, it did not take 43 years this time. Remember, Mordrain had basically his entire kingdom there. When he learned that Josephus and Joseph had been captured, through a dream where Jesus was literally being beaten by Crudel and commanding Mordrain to be his earthly avenger, Mordrain rode against Crudel killed him, and freed Joseph and Josephus from prison. After the victory, the three men bowed low before the grail to thank God for their success. Joseph and Josephus shut their eyes in respect, 
it wasn't until they heard footsteps crunch past them and a voice from heaven say, quote, you shouldn't go any closer, that they opened their eyes. But it was already too late. Ever since that time in the cave, in episode 120A, Mordrain had craved a closer look at the grail. He wanted to see what Nalcian had seen, what no mortal could name or comprehend. Joseph and Josephus rose and rushed to grab the king, but he had made his choice. His laughter melted into screams as his eyes burned and his legs lost all strength. Joseph and his son barely caught the king and laid him out on the ground. Suddenly, Mordrain stopped shouting and became still. He began to pray. He shouldn't have looked. He knew. But he couldn't help it. He'd accepted this punishment and only asked one thing of God. The night that would come, the ninth in Nalcian's line, and the one who would find the grail, Mordrain wanted to meet him. He wanted to embrace him and watch him leave on his quest. A long silence followed by a... Yeah, okay. Came down from heaven. Mordrain would remain blind and unable to walk until that fateful day where he would meet the knight and embrace him. Despite entering Camelot as a conqueror and leaving as an invalid, Mordrain praised God, and he stayed with his wife until the construction of the abbey was complete. When it was finished, he took vows to serve God, found a humble room, and began his wait. Years passed, and the people who'd come over with Joseph fanned out over all the southern parts of the island. Only people like Josephus dared to venture north. In fact, one morning he left without much fanfare, and he was gone for 15 years, preaching and tending to inhabitants all over the island. There was only one thing that brought him back to Wales, the death of his father. Joseph had remained behind with his wife, who had died a few years earlier. Josephus was now 73, and Joseph who had survived decades in prison without aging, was pushing 70 himself. They had come to this place together, established a kingdom that would reign for centuries, and protected the grail. Joseph was glad he was able to share it all with his family. He had lived longer than he deserved, and welcomed the opportunity to meet his savior again. Joseph waited with his father, until the man breathed his last, and left. Outside, Josephus met with his cousin, Alan, it was time. Long ago, he had named Braun and Braun's son, Alan, as protectors of the Grail. They would ride to a place unknown to even Josephus, build a tower, and the members of their line would protect the Grail until a day of prophecy where one would come for it and bring down ruin on all of Great Britain. Joseph handed the wrapped Grail and Lance to Alan. With a nod, Alan bid goodbye, and Josephus watched him ride off toward the land beyond. In the morning, the sun rose on what Josephus knew to be his last day. There was one more stop he had to make. Josephus waited until the man was finished praying to knock. He opened the door to see Mordrain sitting in his chair, the abbey bustling all around him with the movement of the morning. Josephus shared that he remembered standing before the king all those years ago with his father. Who could have imagined his last act would be coming before the king again? Now a Christian serving in an abbey. Mordrain was confused. Last act? What did Josephus mean? 
Josephus said it was nearly time. Tomorrow, he would be taken to God. But today, there was something he still needed to do. Call for the shield, he said to Mordrain. Mordrain didn't understand. The shield? Then his eyes widened. Oh, the shield, the shield, yeah, got it. It had been buried away, but a couple hours later, a servant came from Gallifort. With him was the shield. It was the one Joseph had crafted for Mordrain at their first meeting. The one that summoned the White Knight during an earlier battle. Josephus explained that he was marking it, drawing a cross on it with his own blood. On that day, wait, did you cut yourself? Do you need a bandage or something? Mordrain cut in. Josephus said no. He was fine. It was just a nosebleed. Mordrain grimaced. Oh, okay, so wait. You wiped your bloody nose on my shield? Josephus sighed. Of course not. He drew a cross on the shield. Oh, so you picked your nose and wiped it on the shield? Josephus paused. Yes, okay? Now, if you don't mind, he was dying after all. Mordrain nodded, and Josephus continued. He said that no one would use this shield until the ninth one of Nassian's line came to start the Grail quest. Until then, the nose blood would remain bright and fresh. Real quickly, I'm not making any of this up. It's in the original version, and Josephus heavily undercuts the drama of the scene by wiping his nose blood all over the shield. Anyway, with that, Josephus smiled and stood gifting the shield to his old friend. Josephus would stay there and die in the abbey the next morning, but he knew Mordrain's road was a far longer one. He wouldn't see death before the prophesied night, and neither of them had any idea that it would be nearly 500 years until that day. Sure enough, the following day, Josephus died. People came all the way from Scotland to bury him among those he had helped. After that, Nassian stopped by often and sat with his old friend. Mordrain, and together they remembered their adventures. Until one day, he didn't. Nassim was found in his home. He had died praying. The shield was left on his tomb, awaiting the knight who was fit to wear it. Over time, Mordrain watched his generation fade and die around him. The boys that came to work in the abbey became young men, and the young men became old men, and the old men died. So happened again and again and again. The Romans came and went. Then there were rumors of kings. Then high kings. Stories of men named Constantine, Vortigern, Uther, and Arthur. All the while, Mordrain, Nassian, and Joseph's line carried on. As time passed, no one believed that the doddering, blind old man, who had been in the abbey longer than anyone could remember, was anything more than that. They didn't know that he had sailed west with their ancestors and seen the grail, even though it had cost him everything. Mordrain had no idea that his progeny was still out there and that this was their time when the lines of Mordrain, Nassian, and Joseph would rise again from the pages of history, this time in names like Yvain, Gawain, Lancelot, and Mordred. Mordrain felt it the day when Balin accidentally found the grail and stabbed the Fisher King with the Holy Lance, and plunged Britain into chaos for a generation. He prayed for years that a hero would come, and then, one day somewhere far away, a child was born.
that's it for the story. Don't get too excited though. We're still pretty far from the grail hero, Galahad, in our main King Arthur narrative. As you can see from the story, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was not super far off in its treatment of the subject. If you're interested in learning more and reading a lot of medieval preaching, I link the main source I used in the show notes. Just to preempt the emails, this story really didn't bother following any sort of historical accuracy. At the time Joseph and his people sailed across to Great Britain, the Romans had already been there for about 30 years, driving the Britons, with an O, the Celtic inhabitants of the islands, west and north. We're going to start ramping up with more King Arthur and his knights, because as I was outlining this episode, I realized we still have so much to go before we even start the quest for the Holy Grail. Next week, what if you got exactly what you wanted? What would you trade for it? What if everyone got what they wanted, regardless of the cost for others? A story from the Grimm Brothers asks that question, and also includes a lot of meddling from evil dwarves, because why not? Real quickly, if you're not listening to fictional, it's basically what we do here, but with classic lit. And we just wrapped up The Tempest by William Shakespeare this week. And we're going to be wrapping up The Count of Monte Cristo and Season 3 over the next three weeks. If you're looking for even more of my voice in your life, check out The Tempest, and then go listen to last season's Count of Monte Cristo series to get ready for the finale. I promise you will not be disappointed. Go to fictional.fm, follow the links in the show notes, or search for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creatures this week are seahorses, specifically the hippocamp and the hydropus. If you've ever been in the aquarium and looked at the tiny seahorses and thought, yes, this thing will grow up to be a creature that will serve as a sort of fish Moses, leading fish all over the ocean to a fish promised land, or, well, I guess ocean in their sense, then you're mostly right. Those seahorses in the aquarium are not that fish. Not exactly. Those seahorses are baby hippocampos, and they won't lead fish they'll just grow up to be the really awkward fish-horse hybrids that will pull the chariot of Poseidon. Seriously, they're horses, but the back half is a mermaid-style fishtail, and the front two hooves are just these bulky, awkward fins. Poseidon is literally the Greek god of horses, and can make any horse he wants. I don't know why he settled for this really ineffective-looking weirdo. The Hydropius is something else entirely. It's like the hippocamp, but it got to keep its front hooves and its mermaid's tail is golden. It is the fish Moses. And when it comes of age, it will travel the oceans of the world, gathering all the fish to it. The fish will instinctively follow it to the golden fish. The golden fish is, of course, the king of the fish. When they find him, every fish will bow down. If that's even possible for a fish. It will be amazing. They'll be united with one purpose. Maybe they'll build a society underwater, under the infallible leadership of the golden fish. Maybe they'll plan to use fish engineering to find a way to live outside of the water and take over the surface world. Maybe they'll just bask in the unity and goodwill. Whatever they decide, it will be a glorious five minutes until they all forget why they were there and leave. Because they're fish. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.